It's a great honor today and a privilege for us to welcome to the pulpit here uh, Dr. Mark Dalby. He is the uh, president of Covenant Seminary at the one-year mark. He became the uh, president last May. Uh, he has served on that faculty for many years. He's also pastored, and he's brought a lot of experience and wisdom uh, and vision from God to that position. And uh, we've had the weekend with him, a variety of different meetings, and uh, we welcome you this morning to, to the pulpit. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege to be here in your congregation on this Lord's Day. I thank you so much for your support of the seminary over many years. It's great to know there are people praying for us and supporting us and sending people our way that we get to send back your way sometimes as well to serve in various kinds of pastoral ministry and other kinds of of ministry as well. Uh, We counted a privilege to be involved in the equipping of pastors and leaders for God's church and kingdom. Our uh, purpose statement is to glorify the triune God by training his servants to walk in God's grace, minister God's word, equip God's people, all for God's mission. And uh, it's been a privilege to be there for 15 years in a wide variety of Ways at the seminary as dean of students. Students called me dean of fun. That was a title that uh, Dr. Chapel couldn't give to me. It was a, sort of an honorary student title. Uh, and then I was asked to be vice president of, of uh, academics and the faculty and enjoyed that role. And then asked to be interim president, never aspiring or thinking that I would be a candidate for president. And uh, had the privilege of being invited in to be a second finalist. I thought the other guy was going to get it. But here I am, and uh, in a position I never dreamed that I would be in, but a position I now feel more called to than anything I've done, and uh, more fulfilled in, and it's been the hardest thing I've ever done as well. Um, But that multiplying factor at a seminary, uh, I miss being a pastor, but I love training men who will serve many, many, many congregations Uh, both in this country and around the world. So thank you for the privilege of serving in that position in the denominational seminary. Um, We love RTS as well, by the way. I just thought I'd throw that in and are excited about uh, the ways that they are serving and training uh, leaders for God's church as well. But it's a privilege, and thank you for uh, supporting us. Our passage this morning we'll be looking at is in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and instead of reading the 28 verses we'll be looking at all at once, I'm going to read it as we go. This is a narrative passage. Uh, If you were reading it for the first time, it would feel like a drama that's unfolding, a story that's being told that you would sort of be hanging on the next thing that's coming in this unfolding drama. So though many of you may have read this and will remember it, and could tell the story to your children and grandchildren, I'm going to go through it with some sense of entering into it as though we're hearing this for the first time and try to capture what the people then were going through and connect to them as we think about things in our lives. So I want to start with a question, and that is, what crisis are you facing in your life today? 
Now, you may have just come through a crisis and you say, I'm not facing anything right now, but you know, each day has its own trouble, as Jesus uh, told us in the Sermon on the Mount. It may be a small mini-crisis that arrives. It may uh, be something large that seems impossible. What will be your response to the challenges that come into your life or are in your life right now or will come in in this coming week? Well, we see a king, King Jehoshaphat. When I was young and reading the Bible, I loved that name, King Jehoshaphat. I just love to say it, you know. Um, but King Jehoshaphat was a descendant of King David and serving um, in the southern kingdom. And he had done um, a number of wonderful things. If you look at the three chapters that read up to this threat that suddenly came to him that we'll look at in a moment. Well, let me just read that, that, those verses first so you get the context. Verse, chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites and with them some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat had a crisis. Three armies had formed a coalition and they were coming up toward Jerusalem to take them down and out. Now, if you're Jehoshaphat, you're going to be wrestling a little bit with this because we're told in the narrative prior to this that the Lord was with Jehoshaphat. He was a very godly king. He was given great power and great wealth. It's, he's described as walking in the ways of David, his father. His heart is described as devoted to the ways of the Lord. He had removed the high places of false worship and torn down the Asherah poles from throughout Judah. Additionally, he's described as the shepherd of Judah. He was not only king who ruled with authority, but he was a king who shepherded Israel, the people of God, as a flock of people who needed his care. He sent the Levites. Remember, the, all priests are Levites, not all Levites are priests. So the Levites who were not involved in the priestly work at the temple were involved in teaching the word of God to the people of God, to leading them in prayer and and so he sent Levites throughout all the towns of Judah to teach the people the book of the law of the Lord. They had uh, repaired the temple. They had established the true worship of God. And if you add up all the men that are described in his army, you come up with 1.2 million men in his standing army. Pretty powerful army. And so the Lord um, was with him. Now, he engaged in this sort of foolish alliance with King Ahab in the north where somehow Ahab convinced him to dress up in all of his brightly colored royal robes and go out to battle so that the, uh, the enemy uh, could, uh, could sing him out as the king and try to kill him. And that's the one where Ahab dressed in a common soldier's outfit. And uh, Jehoshaphat survived, but Ahab got an arrow right in the weak spot of the army and it killed him, probably on his side, uh, toward his heart. And uh, Jehoshaphat survived. 
He also brought judicial reform throughout Judah to see that the, the just laws of God from his word were being enacted and, and uh, that the people were experiencing justice throughout the land. So now you would think all of those things, and then he gets this message. And he's got to struggle with why all of a sudden, after all these things, are these armies forming a coalition and coming up against me to make war? Well, where do you turn in time of struggle and challenge? What do you do when things get tense, when you're under stress, when you have heard plenty of bad news and now you hear more? What do you do? Well, I'd have to say, if I were King Jehoshaphat, I think I'd gather the 1.2 million men in the army and just send them out to battle to head off against this coalition of armies. I mean, that's sort of a simple formula. Army coming up against Jerusalem, 1.2 million men ready for battle. Who needs to pray about that? Let's just send the army. Okay, I've got the resources. I'll even acknowledge God provided the resources. Uh, Nothing to fear. The army is here. Well, instead, Jehoshaphat turned to the Lord directly. He didn't assume that the Lord's provision in this situation would be to send the army. So he called a fast, and he called an assembly, and he gathered all of the people in Jerusalem from throughout Judah to seek help from the Lord. And we're told in the passage that the wives and the children and the little ones. So it means the men of Judah, their wives, their, you know, walking, talking children, and the little ones that they were holding in arm. King. So this powerful king with a 1.2 million man army humbled himself before the Lord and the nation and sought the face of the Lord. And the people came. One of our professors, Jerem Bars, who's our resident scholar with the Francis Schaeffer Institute, often quotes Francis Schaeffer in this quote that I think is exactly timely and relevant for Jehoshaphat and us. What we are trying to do is not difficult. It is impossible. And that's a good starting point for King Jehoshaphat even with the resources he had. That's a good starting point for us as we awake up each day. Lord, what you're calling me to do today is not hard. It's impossible. I dare not attempt it without crying out to you for your mercy and grace and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to walk in the paths you would have me walk in today. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, um, She said, how can this be? She was told, nothing is impossible with God. And she said, Lord, be it done unto me, your servant, as you so have said and desired. In 1980, I got a phone call that my 53-year-old pastor father had suddenly passed away of a heart attack. Um, That was probably one of the first times in my life that I really recognized what a desperate crying out to the Lord was about. It didn't make sense. He was in the prime of his ministry. 
Um, he was out golfing by himself and fell over and died on the eighth green. And as I flew from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to Kansas City, Missouri, and just processed that through, it was like the need for the near presence of the Lord in a situation where I was in utter despair and didn't know what to do, but would be looked to as sort of the, the oldest son in the family to you know, care for my mother and figure out what we do and all of that, was one of those crying out to the Lord times in my life. Well, let's read on what happens. So everybody's come together. They're seeking the Lord. Verse 5, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the nation, kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jehoshaphat in front of all the people, the men, the women, the children, the little babies, is crying out to the Lord in prayer, interceding on behalf of the nation. And he starts out, this is, this is what we sometimes would call a prayer, if it were in the Psalms, we would call it a prayer of lament. It's crying out to God for, in a bad situation, saying, Why, Lord, is this happening? I have people sometimes who say, I'm really struggling and so on and so forth, and I don't know what to do. And, and I said, well, have you taken your struggle and laid it out before the Lord? Oh, no, I would, might be implying to the Lord that there was something wrong with him for putting me in these circumstances. I said, but you feel that way, right? Yes. Do you think the Lord's shoulders are big enough to hear you cry out to him with this lament, which he already knows is in your heart? Read some psalms. It's like, wow, can we really pray like this? But notice, as Jehoshaphat prays this prayer of lament, he starts out by praying to God. He ends up by having a deep faith in God. And in between, he's saying, this doesn't make sense. Why is this happening We don't know what to do. Will you help us and answer us here? So he pours his heart out to, first of all, God is the sovereign ruler over all nations, not just Judah. Revelation 1, 6 gives us encouragement today. Jesus is described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we need to keep that in mind when we read the news, don't we? Listen to it. Watch it on TV. 
So Jehoshaphat says, all power and might is in your hand. And then he reminds God that God is the covenant God of his people. He rehearses redemptive history. You gave this nation by way of promise to Abraham, your friend. You led us into the promised land under the hand of Moses and into the land by Joshua. Um, And David and Solomon built this temple that we've gathered at. And the prayer when Solomon dedicated the temple was to bring when calamity and sword and famine come, gather here and cry out to the Lord. And that's what we're doing. The army alone is not the means of grace and deliverance unless God directs its usage. So he's standing in the presence before the temple that bears the name of God and crying out in distress, believing God will hear and God will save. But the confusion and uncertainty is expressed to God as well. These are the people you told us not to invade when we came into the promised land. We were told to spare them, not to wipe them out. And we did what you said. And now they're coming against us. We don't understand. Uh, What is up with this? Why is this happening? So he addresses God. He recites the past. He protests, in a sense, that we did what you wanted, and we've been bringing reform in the land, and a plea for deliverance is part of this prayer. And yet I love, the part I love the best is the last phrase. I think God loves it when we pray like this. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God loves that kind of prayer. Because we don't know what to do. Much of the time. Now, we like to think we know what to do. We like to think, I mean, we think we have certainty for a long time to come, and yet we're told to pray for daily bread. I don't like that daily part of praying for bread. Okay? Give us this day our daily bread. But we don't know what to do. And Jehoshaphat says, we can't face this vast army. We don't have the power. We don't know what to do. Yet our eyes are on you with expectancy and confidence and hope. Do you see this tension here? We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Show us. Help us. We're counting on you. We're holding on to your promises. Deepen our faith. Increase our faith. What do I do when difficulty comes? Do I turn to my own resources or to the Lord's? Do I say, I know what to do, Lord. Now bless my efforts. You've shown me before. You've given me the resources before. I'll go forward and face this one without truly looking to you because I know what to do. God doesn't like that kind of prayer. And we don't really ever, very often at least, give words to that kind of prayer. But I think we often live in a way that would reveal that our hearts are more like that. God loves to hear, I believe, help my unbelief. We're called to receive and rest upon Christ alone, not only for salvation, 
but for sanctification. Every day I claim and take hold of his faithfulness and ask for his sufficient supply of grace to rest upon Christ and do as he he will. We're called to come in our weakness knowing that God is strong. Jesus, our great high priest, has been where we are. He understands our challenges and he intercedes. In the midst of temptation, I used to think that the passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, I think it is, where it says God will uh, provide a way out when we're faced with temptation. And so I'm saying, Lord, show me the way out. And the way out is actually Jesus coming and grabbing us by the hand or maybe the wrist and pulling us out of that place of temptation. He himself is personally our way out. We don't necessarily need a checklist plan how to get out of this. We just need him to pull us out. And he does that as we keep our eyes fixed on him. We don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. That's my prayer for First Presmacon, that you would be a congregation of people who cry out to the Lord, who are willing to say, we, we live life like this, with our hands lifted up, not even grabbing the resources you've given us and saying, now we'll go do this and this, but saying, Lord... Show us. Help us. We're looking to you. Give us daily bread for today to serve and follow you as a congregation of your people and as you disperse into all the places that God has placed you and called you in your homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and schools and in the community that you would be led by the Lord Jesus to see what he wants you to do in his strength. Well, God answers Jehoshaphat's prayer in verses 14 to 17 in a wonderful way. I mean, 13 says, Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord... You talk about Jehoshaphat humbling himself. He's there. He's just putting himself out there. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is the king in front of all of the people. That's a pretty vulnerable prayer. That's a prayer of faith. That's a prayer that believes God's going to act. That's a public prayer. That's not like I'm over here saying, I don't know what to do, Lord. Show me what to do. My eyes are on you. That's in front of everybody. That everybody that's looking Jehoshaphat to lead them and tell them what to do. And he says, I don't know. I'm looking to the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord, verse 14, came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed at this great horde For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they'll come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them. 
and the Lord will be with you. So here's the king waiting for the Lord to show him what to do. And the, king, and the Lord sends a prophet to the king. The king himself is subject to the word of God. And the prophet speaks, empowered by the spirit of God. And he answers the prayer of lament with what we sometimes call a salvation oracle. Oracle just means prophecy. Don't be afraid, says it at the beginning and at the end. And assurance that God will win the battle. It's his battle. The Lord is with you. Victory is certain. God will provide. I have a friend who, in my early years of pastoral ministry, um, said, I think God calls us. God has designed us to depend upon him. That's what it means to be a creature before a creator. That was, is what it means to be an adopted son or daughter looking to our heavenly father. And he said, why do we complain so much about having to depend upon God? And he came up with this phrase. He said, we should delight in the designed God-designed dependency of our lives. Can we be thankful that we have to depend on God? Or does it frustrate us that we have to depend on God? That question begins to reveal what's in the heart. Well, the people respond, verses 18 to 21. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Verse 20, And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So what happens? Well, first of all, they worship God. The prophet spoke. The Lord gave the answer, what he's going to do. So they bow down and worship, all of them, including the king, humbling himself before God and the people. Then they stand to praise God with a very loud voice. Now, something happens between verse 19 and 20. Nighttime, overnight. Now, do you think their faith remained completely strong and confident all through the wee hours of the night, knowing this coalition of armies are coming? Do you think anyone said, was that prophet really sent by the Lord with that message? Should we really believe that God's going to win this battle without sending the army to fight? So the next morning, what happens? They get up early in the morning. It doesn't say that the women and the children and the babies aren't there. It doesn't say they are. But he says, hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. He doesn't say, hear me, men of Israel. Can you imagine, on this Mother's Day, I'm going to take just a one-minute break. 
and tie in what I think. Can you imagine the stories that... So imagine you're a little one coming up to Jerusalem. Or you're a three- or four-year-old. And you're trying to say, Mom, what, what's going on here? What's happening? And why are we going out to battle? Okay? Well, because God has promised he's going to deliver his people. And he wants us to watch his deliverance. And maybe eight, ten, you know, you know how children say, tell me that story over again. My, I have three children who are married and six grandchildren. And, you know, I get tired sometimes of telling the story over and over and over again. But they say, tell me that story. Tell me that one again. Again. Now, they may be prolonging going to sleep. You know, it's like, I need, and I need a glass of water now, too, or whatever. Um, but this, this story, can you imagine the blessing in my life of having a mother who told me Bible stories and told me stories out of her family growing up and our family of ways the Lord met us and provided for us. It's a tremendous blessing. So my one application to Mother's Day today is tell stories of God's saving, redeeming, wonderful grace to your children and your grandchildren to whatever degree they'll listen to you and, and don't ever get tired of it. But what does the king do? He encourages their faith the next morning. He's a shepherd of his people. Remember, this was last, yes, this was yesterday. Today's today. Remember what God's prophet said let's go to, up to battle and watch God win the victory. Believe the Lord, believe his prophets, trust his word is what he's saying, what we would say today. And then they had this plan. Let's send the musicians first to face whatever is going to happen. And we'll put the army right behind them. Now, why would they do that? Well, the musicians are actually, they decide they're not going to pick a complex, beautiful, Trinitarian hymn that has 16 verses in the Trinity hymnal. Okay? They decide what's appropriate as we go to battle, is a simple, repetitive chorus. This is one of those times that the same seven words sung 11 times actually is exactly what's needed. Okay? Some of you know what I'm talking about here. Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Okay, it's 12 words. This is one of the favorite simple, repetitive choruses in all of Scripture. It comes up in other places. The people respond, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. They're about to face an enemy army without soldiers leading the way. What are they doing? They're stirring up by the use of this musical expression, God's steadfast love endures forever. Believe it. God's steadfast love endures forever. Next step, believe it. Give thanks to him. He's going to win this battle. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord went into action. He set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, verse 22, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. One of God's favorite battle plans is have the enemy completely destroy each other as they're coming after you. Was this a heavenly army? Was it self-destruction? We don't have all the details. But we know when they went up over to look at what had happened, the people of God saw 
the enemy completely lying on the ground dead. And the battle cry is replaced with more singing and more celebrating. And they gather the spoils of this victory. It takes them three days to gather it up. They're singing and praising. It's called the Valley of Praise. This is a chapter actually about the worship all throughout it. And the worship classes that I teach at the seminary, I, I use that in this way. It's about leadership. Look at Jehoshaphat and how he leads the people. But they're, they're praising God in the Valley of Praise. They didn't have all their great instruments from up at the temple. They had their, for you guitar players, they had their, their baby tailors with them that were fit for traveling. Okay, they could uh, carry them a little bit easier. But when they, then they got back to the temple and it was all out celebration and worship and praise with all the best of the choirs and the instruments and, and the, the people singing and praising God as they went back because God had won the victory. Well, as we close... We see Jehoshaphat imperfectly reflecting what the Lord Jesus Christ came and did perfectly. He looked to his Father in heaven. He is the divine warrior who won the victory as he went to the cross, humbling himself and then being raised, who gives us power now to face whatever we face, Is it a financial crisis or a family crisis or a neighborhood struggle or a workplace impossibility or just in your own heart emotionally or your health, whatever it may be? Can you pray? We don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you and trust the greater son of David whose kingdom has no end, who comes to you with power and tenderness to meet you where you are and show you the way forward. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are with us here this morning, these many centuries later, after this battle that Jehoshaphat engaged. We thank you for the fact that we live at this point in the history of redemption, on this side of the cross and the resurrection, knowing that We've been risen with Christ and seated in the heavenly places even as we've expressed in some of our songs this morning. Lord, guide us. Deliver us. Provide for us. Increase our faith. May we have the courage that comes by your indwelling spirit to face today and this week and throughout our lives all that we must face in the power of Christ through whom we pray. Amen. Please stand.